Amen. We may be seated. Well, first, can you just give the band a hand for leading us this morning? It's been great. Thank you, guys. Uh, and also, on Monday, we had a, a, a great crew of people that just kind of decorated our place and space for Christmas. So we wanted to make sure that as we begin this season of Advent, of, of remembering the arrival of Jesus Christ, that this is a season that is distinct and set apart from the rest of the year. It is one that we do think should, you know, bring tidings of great joy and peace. That we should remember the love of God that came in Jesus Christ. That we should have hope for a better future. And so we have kind of set Ecclesiastes aside that we've been doing all fall. We'll pick that back up in January. And we said, hey, over the next four weeks, the next four Sundays, uh, and then actually five weeks going into Christmas Eve, we want to be hyper-focused on remembering the arrival of Jesus Christ in this season that we call Advent. And so each week we have different families and people up lighting the Advent candles and doing some scripture readings. We'll have uh, Christmas carols and, and Christmas songs all month long. Uh, and today uh, we're beginning a new series for Advent that we're calling A Thrill of Hope, A Weary World Rejoices. And I just thought that this would be kind of a necessary and an important series for us, uh, whether you're new and haven't been in church for a while, or, or whether you've been enduring uh, a long season of, of trial and difficulty. Uh, the reality is, uh, all of us need hope. And this is a lyric from one of my, my absolute favorite Christmas songs, is Oh Holy Night. And that's where we get the title, right? Uh, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And so today... We'll look at uh, hope desired, right? We all want hope. We all need hope. Next week, we'll look at hope for the weary. Uh, the week after that, hope for the world. And then the week before Christmas Eve, uh, we'll do hope rejoices. And then that will take us to Christmas Eve where we will celebrate the fact that hope is born in Jesus Christ. And so I hope you join us for that Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. And so lots going on. And so as we get into this series... Besides being a lyric to, to Oh Holy Night, it's a relevant topic because when, when past pain and present realities have us weak and weary, we, we need a real and living hope to endure the present and, and persevere to a better future in and with Jesus Christ. And so hope is part of how we understand what was accomplished, what is being accomplished, and what will be accomplished by God in the arrival of Jesus Christ into human history. And so I, I thought we'd start today by just kind of defining hope, because I think that hope can be that ethereal kind of term that we don't really um, grasp onto. I want to make sure that we have a very biblical concept of the word hope. And so there's, there's kind of three ancient words um, that the, the, the biblical text uses for hope, um, yaha, uh, kava, and uh, elpes. And, and, and each of these three uh, have three different meanings, but they always translate to hope. And those three meanings are this. Number one, waiting. Tension and anticipation. And so, and it's specifically applied to, to a future that is better than our present. And, and can we all agree that all of us, even if you're crushing it right now, want to be able to anticipate a future that is better than our present? Right? We, we want more. We want better. And so uh, we, we, we want it better than our present because what is happening right now or what has happened in your past has not satisfied it has not led you to a place of, of resting peace. It has not led you to a secure sense of love. It has not led you to a greater joy. And so at times, we, we 
we, we think hope, yeah, I want something better, but I'll just be frank, I don't know that I love these, these biblical translations. Now, now, don't get me wrong, I mean, this is what the concept is, but, but I want hope to mean wait is over. I don't want it to mean waiting. I want hope to mean tension is resolved, not living in tension. I want hope to mean anticipation realized, not just continually anticipating. And the reason is, is that I'm impatient. I think we're impatient. I want joy right now. I want peace right now. I want a s- secure sense that I'm loved by the Lord who made me right now. And so there's, there's times where we, we don't want to wait for later. We want that tension to be resolved now. And so all of us at some point have a tangible need for hope because the tension is, is more difficult than our current circumstances. And it leads us to ask, and maybe this is where you're at today. Will things ever change? Will it ever get better? Will I ever get better? Will our relationship ever get better? Will, is there going to be resolution? And, and that's why we said, hey, this is, this is a series where we hope the weary heart rejoices. Because when you've endured a long season of anticipation or, or, or waiting or endurance and, and hope hasn't been realized, at a certain point, our endurance for it not getting better begins to wane. And so we, we do get weary. Our endurance for less than fades. Our dissatisfaction grows. And so hope is something that we all need, and, and yet we know it's not always present in our lives. And, and I think um, there's five reasons why I think that hope isn't always present in our lives. Five reasons why we don't have hope. Because we place it and grasp for it in the wrong things. These five things are this. Number one, I think we don't have hope because we hope in ourselves, right? A, a little more progress, I can just try a little bit harder. I'll get a, a little bit better. And so our hope is in ourselves. And so if we work hard or we put my or whole selves into it, then, then my hope is that in the future that, that, that better person's going to arrive, that a better version of Chris Rich is going to show up. And then, and then my hope will be realized, right? And, and how many of us, like you are four weeks away, five weeks away, I should say, from, from putting out a bunch of resolutions to make yourself a better person. And then you're six weeks away from all of those resolutions being broken, right? And, and them not being realized. You're like, yeah, I'm going to fast and do liquid all January for like, you know, half a day because there's still leftover pie. Okay, number two, we don't have hope because we hope in others. Hey, maybe if the people around me would just change, then things could get better. Or maybe if the people around me did a better job of supporting me in how I change, then things will get better. And so we, we place our hope in others. Number three, we place our hope in outside circumstances. That a better situation in my life and flourishing are coming because good changes are around the corner. Right? There's a path for promotion. You know, hey, uh, I'm not that concerned about the Omicron variant. You know, like, that's okay. Right? You know, like, like things are going to get better. And so we just think, that, hey, if our circumstances get better, then my hope will be realized. And it, it doesn't happen. And some of us, like, we're not just like a little hopeful that our outside circumstances will change. Some of us, number four, this is why we struggle with hope, is we have outstanding promises that we believe. You're like, that's an awkward phrase. That's because I did alliteration on purpose. I just want another O, okay? But the outstanding promises are this. Not just that things are going to get a little bit better, but like, hey, my ship is going to come in at some point. 
right? I, I have, you know, I'm a more than a conqueror. I was watching some, you know, TV preacher, and he said if I just do a little bit of this, that like, you know, hey, I, I got royal blood in my veins, and so like, I'm just, everything's going to go awesome. And, and so we believe these promises that maybe are a little, like, more um, uh, outsized from reality. And so we have hope in something that's so dramatic that it's going to change everything. And someday my ship's going to come in. And maybe like, no, no, that's not me. I'm a little more grounded. And this brings us to number five. Number five is this. We don't have hope because we're grounded in optimism. And, and you're like, no, that, that sounds good. I want to be optimistic, right? See, hope, this biblical concept of hope is not optimism. See, optimism, a little more grounded than the outstanding promises, but we get optimistic rather than realistic. And so we kind of tune out things that are bad, and we kind of look around and we say, I think with the pieces here, I mean, yeah, things are really broken, but I think with these pieces I can put something better together. I, I, I can make it work. I, I, can, I, I think I can see how things are going to get better. And again, that ends up tying back to our circumstances, other people, or ourselves. And so the problem with each of these is that they're based either on real things that fail repeatedly, which is us or others, right? Or they're fictions that haven't turned real, right? Those outstanding promises. Or, or things that we think we can see, even though like we've never really been that great at anticipating the future or even the outcome of different situations. So for example, like, like I anticipated going into Friday that the Huskies were going to lose the Apple Cup, but, and it might be a little ugly, but maybe by like a touchdown. And then I watched the game, and if you don't know, for the first time in seven years, the Cougars won. Hooray, good job, own it. We're going to get the next seven. You know, but like, I just had no idea things could go that badly. It's because my vision is that far off. Our anybody think, you know, 18, 20 months ago, hey, it's just two weeks. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine, I promise. No, our vision's off. And so what we do to try to cope is rather than looking to the Lord, we try to just readjust our expectations. So we say, okay, I don't want to be overly optimistic. I don't want to believe in big bombastic promises. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to fall into cynicism. And rather than being optimistic at all, I'm going to go to cynicism. And so uh, just things are never going to go well. They're never going to get better. We go full Eeyore, right? Just, it's going to be terrible. Merry Christmas, Right? And we do this because we think we're tricking ourselves that if I'm just like wet blanket all the time, then if there's like a little ray of sunshine, then I'll really enjoy it. And so we go around life waiting for the next punch, waiting for the next shoe to drop, waiting for the next relational tension, waiting to lose our job, waiting for the next dictate from the governor, waiting for the next health issue to arrive, right? And, and we ain't walking in joy when we're doing that, are we? No, and it's because the answer isn't to give up hope altogether. Because hope is essential for us to function and flourish, particularly in a broken world, right? Because we said hope is anticipating a better future. And so hope is so important because if we don't have it, and maybe some of you have been there, when you don't have any hope at all, what happens? You fall into despair. You fall into discouragement. You fall into depression and an existential crisis arises because you cannot anticipate things ever being better than they were. And so like, man, you get to some dark places where I don't, I don't know why I want to get up. Why would I go to work? Why would I put myself out there in another relationship? Why would I talk to another, like, like why would I invest? Why, why would I do anything? 
And so hope is so essential because otherwise we just start self-medicating and, and, and maybe you've asked yourself that a few times, you know, especially as we walk through Ecclesiastes, like what's the point? Why, why keep going through all of this? And so I want you to ask yourself, what have you placed your hope in? And how has it worked for you? How has it led you to places of greater security, places of greater joy, places of greater vision for the future? Because I believe, and this is why we're doing this series, that we need to reorient ourselves to a place, our hope in something or someone that is outside of ourselves, that is more reliable than others, that is bigger than our circumstances. And so uh, what we're saying is, hey, we all are just going to come in today, put our cards on the table and say, yes, I want hope. Whether things are going awesome or whether things are going terrible, if we can all start today with, yes, I want hope, then we can agree that hope is desired. And so if hope is desired, then let's go to where hope can actually be found. Let's go to the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, you can turn them with me to Psalm 130. It's in the middle of your Bibles. It's a small psalm written towards the end of the psalm book. We're going to look at three different things today uh, on Psalm uh, 130. We're going to be in, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, where are we going to be? Well, I got it in the notes. Uh, Hosea chapter 2 uh, and then First Peter chapter 1. Um, and so we're going to start here. Psalm 130, I'll read it, we'll talk about it. Out of the depth, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, or that's sin or brokenness, right? O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared or revered. I wait, there's that word wait, for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I have Say it with me, hope. In his word I have hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, that's God's people, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so, we're looking at this verse in particular because if, if we always need hope, and we especially need hope when we're in places of despair or disorientation, this is a psalm about despair and disorientation. And finding hope in the midst of that when, when we're not being led by hope, but we're being led by what? We're being led by fear. And fear is the antithesis of hope. The reason fear is the antithesis of hope is because hope is anticipating a better future. Waiting for, like, like tension of a better future will come. I have a hope that there is better in the future. What's fear? That the future is worse. That, that no, redemption's not around the corner. No, restoration's not around the corner. No, not, life's not around the corner. But rather, death is around the corner. Destruction's around the corner. Discouragement's around the corner. And so when we walk in fear, fear is an enemy of hope. Because it anticipates a worse future. And so we, we look down the road and like, I don't know what the future holds, but if it's anything like the past, it's going to be terrible. And again, this, this leads us to places of despair. And we know at the soul level, right, that next bend in the road is going to be bad or even worse than the bad that we're experiencing at this point. And so it's at these times of great fear where we want someone greater to come in and say, hey, hey, this is where security is. This is where life is. This is where joy is going to be found. This is where peace can be experienced. 
And so for the writer of this psalm, this Psalm 130, who's in despair, who's in distress, who is disoriented, who's walking in fear, they have decided that if they're going to look for hope, it's going to be in the Lord. Out of the depths it says, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. I am someone in deep despair. I am in someone in deep and desperate need of hope. And so there's fear as an enemy, but what I, I love about Psalm 130 is when we think about fear as an enemy of hope, we typically go external. And I think even in the last two years, it's been really easy to go external in, in where fear is found. It's in our circumstances. And yet here, the, the writer of Psalm 130, who's in this place of deep despair, doesn't go external, rather, he goes internal. He says, the reason I'm fearing is because of despair deep in my soul. The, he's saying, I am my greatest enemy of having hope. The, it's not the fear of out there, but it's the fear that's growing in here. That something's happening at the heart level. And I think we can all ask ourselves, if we're not satisfied with our present, like, yes, there's outside circumstances that are difficult. And some of us have been through abuse. And some of us have suffered sin from others, like, like absolutely no minimization of that. But sometimes the reason we are dissatisfied with our present is because we've had unrealistic expectations about what that presence should be. Particularly in a world that's, that's broken, a world that, that has sin, a world that has fallen. And so if our expectations aren't realized because they weren't realistic, that's not an external issue, that's an internal heart issue. And so the distress of the writer of Psalm 30 is real. He's crying out. But what's interesting is you hear him in these first two verses. He doesn't cry out, God, bring justice. God, smite my enemies. Break their teeth. Like, like make them burn in a lake of fire. No, the, the writer of Psalm 130, in great distress, in great fear, in great desiring of hope, says, God, if you could do anything in this world, it's not about fixing what's out there. God, give me mercy for who I am in here. He cries out. They cry out for mercy. They cry out for mercy. Not justice, fix what's been done to me. But mercy, spare me from the justice I deserve for my sin. There's an inward focus. God, fix me. Not because I'm good, not because I'm the, and not because you're the worst person on the planet, right? Like, at our worst times, we can always find somebody worse, right? Like, it's always easy to compare down. And so I'm not saying, and we shouldn't be saying we're the worst person in the world. You shouldn't be walking around in, in great despair all the time. But there is this, this tension. He says, because if, if God is counting, and he, and he is, our iniquities, our sin, our brokenness, he says, who can stand? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is no one. No one can actually stand before a holy and just and perfect God and have any hope that God's going to say, you're good. I know you meant well. I mean, you didn't mean well there. I know you didn't mean well there, and you know you didn't mean well there. But, ah, eh, we'll just forget about it. Like, no, it has to be dealt with. And so the, this, this person who's in distress, this person who has begun to lose hope in some ways, is saying, yeah, I've sinned. I know I've fallen short of your standard. God, I need mercy. And so sometimes, you know, we, we kind of get kind of like, um, you know, business leadershipy, coachy, right? And so we say things like, you know, past performance is the best indicator of future performance. 
And you know, again, like Proverbs, like, yeah, there's some truth to that. But now, seriously analyze yourself and analyze your life about past performance. And ask yourself if that is a prison you want to be put in. If you want to find your identity in your past performance. If you want to have any hope of a different future, man, doesn't all of a sudden past performance leads to future performance? Doesn't that become a bit of a prison of identity? I guess I'm stuck. I mean, I screwed up here. I guess I'm just a bad guy. I do bad things now. I mean, I, that, I, I've walked that. I went for a couple years through that in my early 20s. Where I'm like, oh, I've, I've done some pretty horrible things. Might as well just double down and keep going. No, we, we need to have hope. Not, not that, that you are going to somehow get better or get enslaved to this identity. But we need to know that we're not going to be a slave to our past. If you're going to have hope for the future, you can't be a slave to your past. And so the writer of the psalm is, is crying out to that. He's like, I want freedom. I want to have more than progress. He, he says I need to be changed. He, it needs to be changed fundamentally, right? Where we, we can't place our hope and, and look for our hope in just that we're going to figure it out on our own. Instead, again, the writer goes to God. The reason he has hope it's not like, hey, I will do better next time, God. But instead, you know, no, God, I have hope. Why? Because verse 4, with you, there's forgiveness. And, and that the forgiveness is not forgetting our sins, but it, it's actually for, forgiving them, acknowledging that they're there, and saying you're not going to be counted for what happened with those sins. And that the result of that in verse 4, he says, is God so that you can be worshipped. That that. that Fear turns to hope when we revere God. That all of a sudden we're no longer walking in, in fear of despair, in fear even of the, of the prison of our own sin, that yes, there, there can, in fact, there is forgiveness of sin. He says, God, you're going to give me mercy so I don't have to fear the wrath that I deserve. I mean, think about it this way. If, if we've all sinned, if we've all fallen short, if the Bible's really clear that because of sin, like, like the wages of sin are death, the consequences of sin is wrath and justice, how hopeful are you for eternity if none of us can stand before God based on our sins? I mean, like, better live it up now for the next year, 10 years, 20, 30 years, because, guys, this is as good as it's going to get for you. And even then, each day you party, each day you walk away from God, each day you're doing your own thing, you are one day closer to that day where you're going to meet the Lord face to face, and party's over. So you don't have even a real lasting hope. Because, yeah, maybe the next couple years will be great. What about your eternity? The Bible says that our souls are made for eternity that we will spend eternity either with God in his presence or away from God, away from life, away from joy. I don't know about you, I want hope that, that my eternity is going to be better than my present. And so this, this worship of God is, is what we do when he says we're waiting on God. But we're not waiting on God to fix something wrong, you know, or wrong with the world. No, we're waiting for a hope because we're anticipating a better future. The reason we can anticipate a better future is verse 5. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, right? There's a deep soul level groaning for something better. He says, but I have hope. And the reason he says he has hope is not because of his past performance, but is actually, he says, the word of the Lord. He's like, God's promised it's going to get better. God's promised there's a better future than I'm experiencing today. 
God's promise that I'm not going to be defined by my past, but by the future he secured for me in Jesus Christ. And so he, he teases this out in, in verses 6, 7, and 8, where he says, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. And so what, what's happening is while he, he's focused on God's promises, what God has said, what God's instructed us to do in our lives, but this deep soul-level hope, he says, he said, man, he, he's like somebody at the gates, right? The gates of a fortress, the gates, you know, of a, of a great city. There's a watchman at night, and, and he's like, hey, it is, it is the middle of November, where it feels like midnight at 5 p.m., right? I mean, last, last night, our family went to go see some Christmas lights in Arlington. We left Lake Stevens, got in our car at 5.05, and I was convinced it was midnight. Like, just the blackness, right? Anybody have ever been on Highway 9 at night? You know. And so for this watchman, he's like, no, it's the middle of the night. It is so dark. Like, I, there's no moonlight out. There's no stars out. It is so dark. I cannot see what's going to happen. And when you are, when you're in a place of great darkness, man, you can't see well. Are there threats out there? I don't know. Right? Everything gets bigger. All the shadows get bigger. Our fears get bigger. And he says, my soul is going to be like a watchman who waits in the middle of the night. And is a person, like a watchman who's waiting in the middle of the night, the only thing that watchman has is hope. And it's hope for this. Two things. Number one, that the sun will rise. That morning is coming. That there's a better day ahead. Because he's like, hey, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure, I saw the sun go down over there. I'm pretty sure it's going to come up over here. Did I get that right? No, that's north and south. Anyway, there we go. The sun comes up over there, right? And so he has some hope. Because he's like, I, I know this is dark right now. But my promises, my hope is, when I'm hoping in the word of the Lord, is that this night may tarry, but joy comes in the morning. That the, the darkness and the fear and the despair that I'm suffering, or the circumstances around us, they're not endless. And so he hopes in a better future that the sun will rise, light will come, illumination will come, and, and, and he can exhale because he can, he can see what's going on. But in the middle of the night, the farther and farther that night goes on, the farther and farther, or closer rather, sunrise is, the farther sunset is. And so he's saying, yeah, I have hope as well, because I can remember not my past performance, but the past performance of the Lord. It was daytime. In the middle of darkness, you can have hope that there was daytime in the past, and that morning is coming in the future. And what's kind of weird about that is the farther away that memory of the good daytime gets, right? The farther away sunset is, the darker th things seem, the more hopeless you feel like you should be. But it actually means that you've, you've navigated night and you're getting closer to morning. That every day you endure in the midst of darkness with hope, you are a day closer to, to morning, to joy, to the sun rising, to a better future. And so this is why hope is so important for us to keep going in the midst of darkness. So there's a new day with God, and he says here, that new day is as a forgiven sinner and as a redeemed slave. And so that's why I love verse 7. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. He's talking about God's people. And the reason he can say that is, is not because of his character, but because he says of what? The steadfast love of the Lord. That with God there is, he says, plentiful redemption. Oh, I, I love that phrase, plentiful redemption. That for those who wait or, or hope on the Lord, anyone who wants hope in the Lord in Jesus Christ, 
God's redemption is plentiful enough for you. Like there's nobody that's going to be left out that desires to have hope in Jesus Christ. So if your desire is for, okay, I've sinned, I need redemption. He says the redemption is plentiful. It's more than enough. That you're not going to be left out of that. And there's plentiful redemption for those who hope and wait on the Lord, that God is big enough to provide redemption for those who desire it. Because he says it's enough for a whole new nation. So he references Israel because it's a nation of the people of God who've been saved from the slavery of their sin. And so it's this, this, this group of people, but they've all been individually redeemed sinners. And so he's made up like a whole new nation of individual sinners who need hope for a better future. Okay. What's that future? What, what are we waiting for God to do? How's God going to do it? Move ahead in your Bibles a little bit to Hosea chapter 2. Be in this verse for just a little bit. Hosea chapter 2, some of the minor prophets um, here. And, and what's happening in the book of Hosea is it's actually, um, it's a book actually about the faithlessness of God's people. About people who, like in this case, there, there's great adultery. And so, so th- this prophet just kind of keeps going after his wife who's been adulterous over and over and over again. And in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of like, are you kidding me? How are we supposed to move ahead? In the midst of like, hey, uh, man, it, somebody needs justice. In the midst of all of that, it, are these verses here in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This is where we see that Jesus is the promised hope of God. It says this in verse 14 and 15. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst even that, yeah, justice will come. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is talking about God's people. Okay, so let's not get weird about it, all right? Therefore, behold, I'll say it again. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the, the, the valley of a core, which means trouble or, or distress. I'll make the valley of a core a door of hope. And there she'll see an answer as the days of her youth as the time where she came out of the land of Egypt. And so the big idea I want you to get from this section is this. Hope is attractive, right? Hope draws us. Hope is, hope is contagious. Hope is attractive. That There's this dark period that, that for, for this nation, the sun had actually set on their empire. So if you've been with us this fall, we've been reading about Solomon, right? Wise king, the people are prospering, there, there's, there's trickle-down wealth from Solomon to everybody else. Gold, it says, was as nothing in the kingdom of Solomon, right? Everything's going great, there's no hyperinflation, right? Turkey was still cheap, right? All, all the things, gas was still cheap, they didn't have gas in, in the time of Solomon, but you get it. The, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the stuff that donkeys eat was cheap, I don't know, whatever, okay. For these people, it was no longer like nation ascending. It was no longer we're a great superpower. It was no longer like our country is rocking it. In fact, it's the opposite. Solomon's dead. The, the other nations around the world are ready to pick the bones of this kingdom. There's great division within the kingdom that actually leads to kind of two separate kingdoms. Scary. And, and so in the midst of, of this brokenness, it's not like, hey, I just hope that our kingdom gets better because what's about to happen is not that the kingdom arrives, but rather that the kingdom ends. That, that they're going to fall into a place uh, of, of great distress. That people are going to need hope in the midst of circumstances that, that don't lead themselves to optimism. There's not a lot of indicators that are happening economically or politically in this time that say, I think things are going to get better. 
None of that was there. So hope was needed the most. In the middle of God promising justice for unrepentant sinners, he also gives great hope that he's going to call people back to himself, to have hope, to wait on the Lord. That God has set people free before. God's been merciful before. God's been gracious before. He said, hey, remember what I did to you in Egypt when things were terrible? You cried out, and I came in with a mighty hand, and I brought down that empire, and I led you through. I led you through even to a place of of wilderness. And so it's God's past faithfulness that motivates us to hope for the future. It's God's past faithfulness that can motivate us to have hope for the future. And so you look forward in some sense by, by looking backward, trusting in God's character. What has he done? Well, we said, yeah, he brought his people out of slavery, out of the slavery of sin. And, and in this place, it comes from, from being humbled. Because it says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lure her, I'm going to draw her. Talking about God's people, talking about you and me, and he's going to draw us where? Into a place of wilderness. How we do? Oh, there we go. Look at verse 14. Because if we're honest, all of us think that when God has brought us to a place of wilderness, that he's getting ready to be disciplinarian dad. He's brought me to wilderness because I earned it. Maybe. But what does God do in that wilderness, it says? It doesn't say he calls you out for all the ways you've failed. He calls you about how you've deserved and earned wilderness. He doesn't say, hey, I brought you to wilderness. Hope in me. Quit hoping in all the other things. Now, that might be what happens. That might be an outworking of us walking in wilderness with the Lord. But instead, th- this phrase I want you to hold on to because hope is worth it. At the end of verse 14, he says, I will speak tenderly to her. Another translation of that, right? He's, he talks tender to his people. I've brought you to wilderness, but I'm giving you hope. I'm giving you hope in the midst of freedom. I'm giving you hope for a robust freedom. I'm giving you hope in the midst of slavery, that, that, that what's coming is abundant life. And the reason we know that what's coming is abundant life, that, 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 that after that drawing to the wilderness, after being attracted to the Lord in a place of wilderness, God, I have nothing else, but I have you. And God says, yes, I know. And I'm here to be gentle with you in your wilderness. And then it says, a day is coming, verse 15, 
where I will give her her vineyards. Okay, if you, I'm not like an English teacher, but, but the, the her, her vineyards, like if you type that into your uh, computer, it probably does like double word thing, like you got to delete one. No, what's happening here is this is personal and possessive. That God is going to give you personally abundant life. You want to know what a vineyard is? Vineyard is saying, hey, I have joy for you. All throughout the Bible, wine, vineyard means life and it means joy. It says, so hey, I've taken you through wilderness, but know that a day is coming where I am giving you personal, possessive joy. And not just like a bottle of joy, not a, not a keg of joy. I'm giving you the vineyard so the joy comes season after season after season after season. Never ending joy when you have your own vineyard. I want that. I want never ending joy. And he says, where's that coming from? How do we get that joy? That brings us to Advent. Jesus Christ arrives on the scene in the midst of darkness, in the midst of a dark and weary night where people have not heard from the Lord for 400 years. We go through a bad 18 months and we lose our stuff. Right? Imagine God's been silent for Four centuries. Your nation has been overrun by Persians and, and, and by Greeks and by Romans. And then you kind of got your own nation again, but they're super corrupt. In the midst of that darkness, a king has come. A prince has been born and, and light shines into the darkness. And he arrives and when Jesus shows up and he starts talking about having hope in the kingdom of God, he says what? I am the true vine. You want to know where life and joy comes from? You don't need a vineyard. I'm the vine, he says. I'm the one where life comes from. I'm the one where joy comes from. I'm the one who's going to give you life that is personal and is possessive, that is for you. It's also, yes, corporate, right? You're part of the people. And he's like, and I'm going to, like, this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus goes through wilderness. He says he spends 40 days. Like, like that, that's tying himself to the, to the 40 years that God's people were in wilderness. And, and here in, in um, uh, back to Hosea, right, it says, I'm going to give you the vineyard. And he says, I'm going to make the valley of Accor, which is a valley of distress, a valley of destruction, a valley of pain. And I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. So Jesus says, I'm the vine. And Jesus endures great trouble so that we can have a greater hope. And it doesn't happen in a valley, but it said it happens on a mountain. He's put up on a hill, and he's crucified, and he's given as a sacrifice for our sin. That the reason that God can forgive you of his sin is because he's already given justice to Jesus in your place. And so we take communion and we remember that Jesus' body is broken for us, his blood is shed for us. And then he's, he's dead, and he's placed in a tomb. And, and I don't know about you, but if I was one of those disciples of Jesus who feels like, hey, the kingdom has come, his, his will's going to be done, like, like lights shine into the darkness. We got the guy who just rose our buddy Lazarus from the dead. He's turned water into wine, right? Joy. He's fed thousands. He's healed. He's walked on water. Like these amazing things have happened. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's dead. It feels like you saw the sun rise and then immediately there was a lunar eclipse. And you're back in darkness. 
Or, or, or in this case, maybe like the sun's set again. And then you wonder, will, will it ever rise? And, and God's people went through three days of darkness that probably felt like night. And then the morning came because the sun rose. And, and the, the door to the tomb that had a stone was rolled away. And that door of a tomb that represented death actually becomes a door of hope because it means the tomb is empty because our King Jesus is alive. And so at Christmas, we, yeah, we hope for sweet baby Jesus showing up. But the reason that we love sweet baby Jesus is because he lived the life for us, died the death we deserve, and rose again so we get a new life now and new life forever. And then we have hope that, yeah, like I said, the tomb is empty, that the place of death and trouble is now is a doorway of hope. And our response to that is that we get to leave our places of slavery of sin. And we get to be carried, even through wilderness, to a promised land that's better than the one we have now. And that leads us to our last verses as we close. How, I, I want this hope. You should want this hope. How do we experience this hope in Jesus? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. This is just one of the most jacked up disciples ever. We're actually going to be going through 1 Peter uh, here uh, after Ecclesiastes in the winter. And, and I love it because, man, Peter, Peter's just like the most screwed up leader, the most screwed up dude ever. And Jesus is like, I'm going to build my church with you. And this is what he says, writing to people who needed hope. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Want to experience the hope of God? You need to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Back to personal possessive. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. So how do we experience this hope? It goes back to, yes, the character of God, but the character of God explicitly displayed in Jesus Christ. That God has such mercy that, that he's caused us to have a better present than the past we've experienced or the future that we deserve for our sin. And so even if you're in the midst of wilderness, if you're in the midst of wilderness alone, that's terrible. Midst of wilderness with the Lord, there can be hope. There can be joy. There's hope for a way out of the justice that we deserve for the sin. But without Jesus, there is no hope. Because all you get to anticipate is not a better future, but like we said, your anticipation is, is judgment. And so I want us to experience real hope, and that means we have to have life with Jesus today. And so, six quick ways that we get hope in Jesus. Number one, we have hope that we've been made new. It says right here, in verse uh, 3, right? You have been born again. That means born from above. We have a new life with God, with ourselves, a new identity, one where we're no longer our old selves, so you don't have to rely on yourself anymore. 
You don't have to rely that somehow your hope is that you're going to make yourself better. But instead, you don't have to be concerned with your efforts for growth, but, but instead you have communion with God and, and that you're going to be granted growth. As you walk out your new life with the Lord, no, it's not going to be straight line progress, but there will be growth over time. Not because like you, you finally figured it out or you're a better version of yourself than you were, but because through the Holy Spirit, God, you've been born again. You are not the same person anymore. You're not a slave to your own sin and brokenness because you've been replaced with someone new. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Behold, the, the old is gone, the new has come. And that brings us to number two. Jesus is our living hope, so we have a hope that's active. He's not like, well, anyway, hope in Jesus, because he was, yeah, he was a great example, great martyr, great world leader, great teacher. And he says, hey, you've been born again, you have new life, and the reason you have new life is because you have a hope that's alive. That we have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, this is a great Easter verse right here. You're like, hey, too soon, six months from now. No, I, I think we should be thinking Easter every single day. I want resurrected life every single day. That we are hoping that Jesus Christ is alive. That means you have a living hope. That is a hope that's active. That is a hope that's present. That means that, that even when we think that hope is distant, hope is not dead. Even when we have struggles in the present, there is comfort to us now because, because we know that Jesus is alive, that our hope is living and active. Number three, we're given hope for an inheritance. Like, like a real one, not one he says that dies or is dirty or will disintegrate. He uses imperishable, undefiled, or unfading. You have hope of a future with God. He says it's also secured by God. So like, like, hey, I hope like crypto pops. That's great, okay? That'd be awesome. I don't know. I don't have any, so it'd be awesome for somebody. But like, you have a hope in Jesus Christ that is imperishable, that is never fading, that is undefiled, that, that God is keeping secure, probably a little more secure than blockchain. I don't know. We've now exhausted everything I know about crypto. You see, in the Lord, he says, I I've given you an inheritance, not one that you're going to blow like the prodigal son, one that I'm keeping secure for you. Man, that's great hope if you know you have an eternal inheritance. That your final destination is an eternity with God as sons and daughters of him as the king. All right, number four. Because we have that inheritance, because we've been made new, because we have a hope that's active, number four, we have a hope that endures. He says, we are going to face trials. You are going to have moments and seasons of great grief. And in the midst of those, you know, it's not like, hey, happy, it's trial time. No, no, in fact, you have hope for endurance because not of your faithfulness and character, but because of God's faithfulness. He says you have hope, and that hope implies patience. It implies waiting. It implies a future to be realized. And what that means is that our hope is not circumstantial. And because our hope isn't circumstantial, it, it, it's based on a belief about the future, that means that we can endure no matter what the circumstances are. Because we're not hoping in our circumstances, we're hoping in a better future. So we don't have to, to, to fear. Even when, when nothing about our present circumstances lends us hope, we say, well, that's okay. Because my hope's not in today, my hope is in the tomorrow that's been purchased for me in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to number four. Number five, rather, number five. Hope for refinement. I don't know about you, if there's something I hate more than waiting, it's the idea of growing and being refined. I mean, I like the outcome of it. 
Right? We all like the outcome of it. And, and yeah, there, there's, there's sins that are done to us and there's injustices that are happen, but there are trials that we face. And sometimes those trials are actually refining in us and producing in us the change that God has promised for us. So he says, yeah, though we, we can grieve by various trials, what's going to come out of that is something that's been refined and tested by fire. Again, not because of your faithfulness, but because of the Lord's. And so there's growth and there's refinement that happens that produces a better future. Anybody, any of us that have been through some refining fires at times know that, that some of the endurance and character we have now is because of what we've already been through before. And so we're living in that better future that we longed for years ago. And that leads us to the last one. Finally, we have hope in his return. He says, right, that we may be found of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not about what he's done or what he's promised, but what he says will happen when he returns. That we're looking forward to a new city a perfect city with no more sin, suffering, or tears, with abundant life with God and his people. And so, so as, as you're spending time in the season of Advent, yes, look backward to go forward. Yes, look back at what Jesus Christ has accomplished in history. Look back at Jesus' arrival into history. Look at what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and have hope anticipating what will be when Jesus returns in the future? So no matter what's happening, we have hope when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.